people have this misconception that exercise to have benefit has to be, you know, the marathon runners or the people who are running four miles every day, seven days a week. And actually the studies don't support that. Actually, it's a very common misperception. In order to get the benefit from exercise, you do not need to do very much. Actually, interestingly enough, most of the benefit is just that first 150 minutes a week of exercise. And it's just low level exercise, just walking 150 minutes a week. Most of the benefit in terms of reducing your risk of heart attack and stroke comes from that first 150 minutes of just the equivalent of walking. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Peak Health with Dr. Gupta. This show is for those who want to optimize their health and maximize their genetic potential. If you like our show and want to learn more, please visit our website at peakwellnesshealth.com, which is linked in the show notes below, where you can gain access to a 10-day body reset module that teaches you about diet, sleep, meditation, exercise, and guides you on how to lower your blood sugar, lower blood pressure, lower body fat, and improve your biomarkers in just 10 days. Additionally, you can find a body optimization module, which teaches you how to lose fat and build muscle. You can also find a link to schedule a one-on-one consultation with me. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death today, which is quite a scary statistic. According to the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association, 80 to 90% of cardiovascular events are preventable through lifestyle changes. This highlights that atherosclerotic coronary vascular disease, or ASCVD, is primarily a preventable lifestyle disease. On today's episode, we'll be delving into a topic that is a major contributor to cardiovascular health, lipids and cholesterol. Lipids and cholesterol can be a confusing topic for many, including those in the medical community, and we'll be addressing questions as to how often one should get a lipid panel, what the numbers mean, and whether there's a good or bad cholesterol. To guide us through this topic, we are honored to have today Dr. Tara Haddad, a good friend of mine, who specializes in general and nuclear cardiology, as well as cardiovascular research. He currently works for Virginia Heart. Dr. Haddad and I have known each other for a number of years and also are a part of a mastermind group where we discuss medicine, current events, and just have fun. If you haven't heard of a mastermind before, it's a great way to use everyone's, everyone's collective intelligence for a higher purpose. So please look it up. Welcome, Ter. Hi, how are you? Great. Thanks for joining. Of course. Happy to help. Excellent. And uh, we'll start off with a very simple question. What is cardiovascular disease and what parts do lipids and cholesterol play? Cardiovascular disease, uh, Robbie, for your audience, it's, uh, you know, obviously it's a broad category, but what we're really focused on today is, is your arteries, your heart arteries and the arteries in the body. And it all centers on this basic concept that, you know, generally people think of heart disease as when you have the heart attack. And that's really the very end of what happens, right? So typically heart disease starts decades before you actually have some sort of event, whether it's a stroke or heart attack, anything like what most of our loved ones have gone through at some point in their life. And so heart disease is identifying or preventive heart disease, identifying that plaque buildup that builds up in your heart arteries and your arteries in your brain well before it happens. So, um, and that's that's what we're talking about here. Okay. So in exactly as you mentioned, the, the point, the purpose is to, of this exercise and checking your lipids, checking your cholesterol and and making these other lifestyle changes is to prevent this event from happening and prevent that clot buildup. Um, but how does that how does that start in the first place? How does how does that clot start? Right. So great question. So um, so generally speaking, you know, most people when they're in their teens and even before, they their arteries are pristine. They have not nothing within them. They're just a you know flexible uh, you know arteries that have no plaque in them starting around your 20s, and it grows at different uh, speeds and different people, depending on their risk, they start to slowly develop cholesterol within the walls of their arteries. So you sort of think about it like, you know, the inside of your drywall in your house, the behind the drywall, you, you know, drywall may look perfect, but behind it, you slowly develop plaque and plaque is composed of kind of calcium and cholesterol and kind of inflammatory cells in your body. And that slowly builds up over decades and that the, and the frequency with which it builds up you know depends on like we talked about you know Robbie what you said what your cholesterol is that's just one component um, you know whether you smoke or not you know how overweight you are 
Uh, you know, do you have diabetes or not? You know, what's your family history that plays into it? Uh, the genetics that, that you have going into it, all those factors and your blood pressure, all these things play into how, how quickly plaque builds up in your arteries. And, and, uh, you know, the goal is to try to control that plaque early on well before, because like I said, it often builds up for 20 years before you develop an event. And the key is to, we, what we love as cardiologists is to try to catch this early on. We don't like to treat people after they've had a heart attacks. We'd much rather prevent it earlier on. Absolutely. And, you know, the earlier you start thinking about prevention, the better, because it will just trans translate to a better quality of life moving forward. And a lot of the things you do to prevent cardiovascular disease also help in preventing multiple other diseases, you know, focusing on diet and lifestyle and um, exercise and that type of thing. So you mentioned, you mentioned hypertension, family history, um, diabetes or insulin resistance, age. Um, what other risk factors are there for cardiovascular disease? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned the big ones, high blood pressure, diabetes, whether your sugar is high or not. And even if you're not diabetic, whether your average blood sugar is kind of in that borderline range, uh, your waist size or your obesity. So obesity is not just how overweight you are, whether your body mass index is above 25 or not, but also where that distribution of, of fat is. So if your waist size you know, is, is 36 or above, that can also be a significant risk factor. Um, and uh, you know, for anybody who's measuring it, remember it's the tape measure around the biggest part of your waist, not just what you, most people put their, use their belt size, which is usually thinner than what the biggest part of your waist is. So your abdominal uh, waist size, your, your smoking, whether you smoke or not, your family history, as you mentioned, your high blood pressure, your sugar, or your diabetes risk, your family history, um, uh, and then your cholesterol, of course. Um, and within the cholesterol, that's a whole field in and of itself in terms of various factors that can increase your risk in your cholesterol. Just so we can understand this properly. Um, so over time, with these risk factors that we just discussed, um, there's some damage to the intima or lining of your blood vessel. And when that opens up, it there's a space for cholesterol and lipoproteins to be deposited in there. There's some inflammation there. It creates a plaque, creates a fatty streak um, that opens up and causes blockages, creates clot, causes clots and forms blockages. And that leads to, you know, that leads to heart attacks and strokes and that type of thing. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, basically. I mean, essentially what happens is that plaque builds up, like I said, with that drywall analogy, builds up behind the drywall for years and years and years. And then one of two things happens, like you said, either that lining or that drywall that's covering up that plaque and at some random point just opens up and ruptures. So imagine you have black mold behind your drywall. All of a sudden the drywall, there's a hole in it. And all that stuff shows up to the, all the blood going through the blood vessel. When that happens, you know, blood hates to see stuff like that. And so as soon as that lining ruptures, it clots right on the top of that plaque. And that's one possibility. The other possibility is that if you're if you're more lucky than that, is that that plaque slowly builds up, but doesn't the, the wall, the, the lining doesn't rupture. It just slowly builds up to the point where it reduces blood flow to your artery over time. And that's where you get warning signs, symptoms like chest pain, or breathing problems, simply from the inside of the artery being a little bit obstructed, but not necessarily totally closed up by a clot. Excellent. Okay. And, and that's what we're, we're going to talk about today is ways to change your, your risk factors such that that fatty streak does start you know, you're not, it's not growing. It's actually maybe potentially even resolving. So that can all, you can reverse this process all with lifestyle changes. So and we're going to talk about that. And you can, you, there are studies clearly that show you can reverse this process. You, you can stabilize it and even reverse it slightly as well. Wonderful. Okay. So we're going to talk about uh, lipids and cholesterol because that's a big part of this. Let's start off with a simple question. Is there a good and bad cholesterol? People hear, hear that all the time. Absolutely. So there's several components of your cholesterol. There are uh, the, the bad cholesterol that you're referring to, Ravi, is uh, um, uh, is the LDL cholesterol, and that's that cholesterol is the most associated with uh, you know the risk of heart disease because the higher it is, the more plaque buildup you typically develop. The HDL or the good cholesterol is also is set, tends to be protective, and that that cholesterol, the higher it is, to a point generally the more protective it is. Now that cholesterol interestingly tends to go up with exercise and it goes up with preventing or not smoking or kind of stopping smoking if you do smoke. So those are all lifestyle factors we'd recommend anyway, but they generally do go up with good lifestyle measures and reducing your abdominal waist size also really increases, improves your HDL. 
Excellent. And um, what about what about red wine? That increases your HDLs as well, correct? Yeah, that's a good question. So this is, uh, it does to a point. And so as with most things in prevention, most studies show, and this is common sense to a lot of your viewers, is, you know, everything in moderation, right? So there are, there are studies that show that a small amount of alcohol, like red wine, can improve outcomes, but anything above a certain amount, above you know a couple of beverages, actually increases your risk. So, so, it, so it's as with most things, actually, interestingly enough, almost every lifestyle measure you see kind of a we'll call parabolic curve, where the risk goes down with small amounts and then increase worsens with more the more you do. Okay, so do you recommend to your patients like a glass a day for? Women and two for men is at max. Is that is that the max? The max, right? We don't typically recommend. The guidelines suggest this. We don't recommend for people to start drinking to protect their risk because that that data is not really there. But uh, but if somebody enjoys a glass of wine, we we tell them it's not that you know they're they're not increasing their risk by doing so. It's possibly protective. We would not recommend to somebody who doesn't drink to start drinking because that data is just not there. We we don't. It wouldn't necessarily be protective to go from no drinking to some drinking. Got it. Excellent. Okay, so we'll, we we jumped ahead a little bit, but that's fine. Um, what we're going to talk about now is just a uh, a lipid panel and what that consists of, because we all you know we all go to the our doctors and we get this every every year, ideally. Um, so what is what is a lipid panel? What does it consist of? Right. So good question. So what what many of your viewers will see is when you know when you see a cholesterol a panel, you'll you'll see a couple's basic numbers, right? So the first one you'll see is that what's called the total cholesterol. And that's all the all the various components of your cholesterol. You'll see, as we talked about, your good cholesterol, your HDL. You'll see your LDL, which is your bad cholesterol. And that's probably the most important number on these, on the on that basic uh, panel. Um, and then you'll see your triglycerides. Triglycerides are more the dietary fat, so to speak. Um, and they, you know, the most important number that correlates with risk is your LDL. Um, there's no magic number. A lot of my patients ask me this. There's no one number that's right. And that's very confusing to a lot of people because you'll see that when, when you guys, when a lot of you will look at your labs, you'll see that, uh, it'll say like above 130 or whatever is abnormal or above 100. There's no such thing that the, there's no magic number for the bad cholesterol. It's based on your risk. You know, if your risk is very high, you, you know, I may be aiming for a bad cholesterol that's quite literally in the fifties or lower. If your risk is very, very low, there's typically not much benefit to keeping your LDL much lower than maybe 130 or lower. Uh, so it really depends on your risk. The second number that's most important, other than your bad cholesterol your LDL that you may see, and you'll see a lot, a lot of you will see this, is what's called the non-HDL. And that's basically usually shown on a lab, but it's also very easy to calculate. It's your total cholesterol minus your HDL. Uh, and that tells us about all the bad parts of the cholesterol, the inflammatory parts of the cholesterol, and everything, Inc- not just the LDL, but some of the other things like APOB, things like that. And so that number, you want that to be low as well. There's some people where, they, and not to get complicated, but there's some people where your their LDL may be okay, but their non-HDL is very high. And that tells us that there's a lot of bad portions of the cholesterol not accounted for by their LDL that we probably still need to pay attention to that may increase their risk. Excellent. And and just to give the uh, listeners a quick side point, which is very important, you know, cholesterol itself isn't bad. You absolutely need cholesterol to survive. You know, it's part of your brain, your neural networks all have a lot of, a certain amount of cholesterol, the cell walls and your cell membranes around your cells have cholesterol. Um, you need cholesterol for steroid hormone synthesis. There's a lot of reasons you need cholesterol. So the goal is not to rid yourself completely of cholesterol. In fact, if you did, you would die and you need it, you need it to survive. But the point is, is that you want to decrease the cholesterol that potentially could cause you harm. Also, LDL is not, you know, necessarily, we call it bad cholesterol so people can understand it, but you know, in and of itself, it's not bad. It's, it's necessary. But if it's maintained in concentration in your blood over time, it's a high enough number, it's oxidized, um, causes inflammation, you know, deposits in your cell wall, as Dr. Haddad mentioned before, that's where things can go bad. And that's what you want to try to prevent. Correct. Correct. And uh, what, what I would add to that too, Ravi, is interestingly, when you look at studies of uh, historical studies of, uh, you know, hunter-gatherer populations uh, from, you know, years and years ago, of course, and, and actually populations that are sort of, you know, insulated from our culture, 
What you'll find is people who, uh, again, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but since you mentioned it, people who follow very, you know, clean diets, predominantly plant-based diets, and uh, even back in the hunter-gatherer population, there's good data to suggest their average bad cholesterols were in the 30s without any medications or anything. It's just that we have gotten ourselves with our culture of diet to, to the point where the average LDLs are so much higher than we probably, than anthropologic data suggests should be if people were eating more clean. Thanks, Tarek, for that explanation. So we discussed the basic lipid panel, and uh, we also discussed the fact that you mentioned there's no magic number for the bad, for, uh, for cholesterol. There's no number that you would just, that's set where you treat it. It's all a measure of risk. Um, the next question to you is, what about the advanced lipid panel? Because many of us have heard of this, this type of uh, analysis. And is it worth requesting this from your primary care doctor? Um, how does it help us and what does it consist of? Right. So very good question as well. So the short answer to your question, Robbie, is that I certainly would not recommend it for every single patient who has uh, a cholesterol pin. Because the, the majority of the information that we need to refine your risk as a patient can be obtained from the regular lipid panel. There are certain situations where that advanced lipid panel may be helpful. And that really is in, uh, depends on, you know, are there factors that, that tell us that your risk may be a little bit different than what your basic factors are? So when we account for your blood pressure, your, cholesterol, your basic cholesterol, your, uh, your overall diet, everything else, if it's still not clear what your risk is, uh, then that advanced lipid panel may be helpful. What, what would factor, for example, if if I if you saw me and you felt and you you know you were from a high risk uh, ethnic population for example or uh, uh, so in your case for example somebody who's a of South Indian descent or South Asian descent we know patients who are South Asian descent have much higher risk of heart disease if you were somebody who had a really bad family history multiple family members who had heart disease if you had an inflammatory disease we talked about how inflammation is part of plaque early in the in this podcast. If you had an inflammatory disease, we know that may increase your risk more than what we would predict by your numbers. So if you had any situations like that, then if you saw me as a physician, I would say, look, your risk may be different than what we can see on the normal cholesterol. Perhaps something like more refinement of your risk with a advanced lipid panel may be helped. So that would be the situation where I would consider it. Excellent. So if you're trying to refine risk and uh, it consists of uh, apoprotein B, um, and lipoprotein little a, you mentioned lipoprotein little a earlier as, uh, kind of a, a higher risk metric is, is that, uh, how does that help to, to measure lipoprotein a? Little right. A little? So good question. So LPA, uh, or the, how we, it was abbreviation for lipoprotein a is, is, uh, sort of, you know, one of the, one of the really, uh, big focus, uh, foci right now, it's sort of, uh, lipid management because we're seeing more and more what a powerful predictor of events this is. And it sort of drives risk so much more than almost any of anything else. So, for example, if your lipoprotein A is at an elevated level, depending on how that level, how high that level is, it may just in and of itself, independent of anything else, lifestyle, everything else, your risk of a heart attack and stroke may be about four times the general population, independent of anything else you may do. That's how powerful of a risk it is. And so we're seeing this more and more. The other reason it's important, Robbie, is that for the first time, we now have medications that appear to uh, help with lipoprotein A above and beyond just you know basic measures. Um, and so that's another reason we focus on it. Um, the ApoB that you mentioned is, is certainly another, as we, as we talked about earlier in the podcast, there are certain bad cholesterols other than LDL that we know increase risk. ApoB is one of those. So when I said earlier, you check your non-HDL, if that non-HDL is high, it's probably because your ApoB is high. And so, uh, you know, that would be very helpful to see if your ApoB is high because that's people with high ApoBs have a higher risk of heart disease as well. Okay. So given the high risk of lipoprotein little a, do you recommend people should check that regardless? I mean, or is it just based on their family history? Right. So the, the average level is pretty low, but... Uh, there are certain populations that have a much higher risk of having a high LPA. So it's genetically predetermined. So what your LPA is when you're 25, it's going to be the same as what it is when you're 50. So generally, if you have a family history, because it's genetically predetermined, you probably should get an LPA at some point. And what I mean by family history is somebody, a direct relative who had a heart attack 
as a male under 55 or a female under 65. And then, uh, so if you have a family history, you probably should get a check because the LPA may be explaining that risk. And that's something your family would want to know because you want to have everybody else tested for LPA probably. If you are from a high-risk population from an ethnic standpoint, it's probably not a bad idea to check it. So that the populations that we know have much higher uh, lipoprotein A levels are people of, of South Asian descent and then African-Americans. They tend to have both populations tend to have much higher uh, rates of high LPA. And again, okay. based on just genetics. Um, the, other, the other people who probably should have it checked, uh, Ravi, is you know if you seem to continue to have heart problems despite good lifestyle or good medications, that's a that's a good indicator that you may have a high LPA because there may be something else causing it, not just, you know, because you're already being protective of lifestyle medications. So that would, that would be another category of people I would usually check it in. Okay. So these people that you mentioned, you typically would just automatically check uh, LP little a. Yes. Regardless. Okay. Yes. The other, the other thing, you know, we discussed prior to the podcast, the, um, the advanced lipid panel also looks at particle size, uh, LDL particle size. You know, the small, the, the small hard LDL particle particles are carry a different risk than the larger LDL particles. I've heard like, you know, in the past where, you know, imagine yourself getting hit by a beach ball or a golf ball, you know, the golf ball is going to hurt. The beach ball isn't. So how, how do you interpret particle size, LDL particle size? Does that, does that make it difference. Yeah, that's a, no, that's uh, absolutely. It's, it's along that same theme of, you know, refinement of your risk. Would I do it in everybody? Absolutely not. But it's one more factor that I would have in my armamentarium of somebody where I'm not sure where their risk is. I may use that as one of those factors. It's not nearly as predictive as lipoprotein A or ApoB, but it is one thing that I would utilize to tell me you know, how low risk somebody is or how high risk somebody is. And that's going to drive how aggressive I am with their lifestyle or medications. Okay. And I think the, you know, from my perspective, checking this could be helpful if your intervention is diet and lifestyle, because if you do see small, dense LDL particles, it could uh, suggest insulin resistance, which means that you got to, you know, shift. If you think your diet is great and you see this, you might need to refine that or maybe see a nutritionist or talk to someone. Correct. You, um, refine your diet and make those changes. So could be helpful. I guess another question as far as cost, is there a big cost difference between the the standard and the advanced lipid panel? Uh, there is. The lipid panel, um, you know, again, it depends on somebody's insurance coverage, but uh, um, but generally um, a fasting lipid panel, a regular lipid panel is, is extremely cheap. And, uh, you know, almost every insurance covers it. Even if you don't have insurance, it's, it's typically very cheap. The advanced lipid panel is definitely exponentially more expensive, but again, it depends on, um, you know, some insurances will cover it. So, you know, um, I certainly would not recommend for somebody to check a advanced panel out of pocket because that's probably going to be hundreds of dollars down more. Are you struggling with reaching your goals? Do you feel like you need extra help to achieve your desired level of wellness? Well, we're here to tell you that you're not alone. Our website at peakwellnesshelp.com, which is linked in the show notes below, offers a variety of resources to help you on your journey towards optimal health. One of the most popular resources is the 10-Day Body Reset Module, which is designed to teach you about diet, sleep, meditation, exercise, and how to lower your blood sugar, blood pressure, body fat, and improve your biomarkers all in just 10 days. Our program is comprehensive yet easy to follow, and we've seen amazing results from those who have completed it. But that's not all. We offer a body optimization module, which is, teaches you how to lose fat and build muscle. Our program is tailored towards your individual needs and goals so that you can be sure you're getting the most effective guidance. And if you need even more personalized support, we offer one-on-one -on -one consultations. During these sessions, we'll work with you to create a personalized plan that takes into account your unique circumstances, preferences, and goals. Visit peakwellnesshealth.com today and take the first step towards achieving your health goals. Now that you've gotten all this information, you've got the lipid panel, maybe the advanced lipid panel, if you think it's necessary, you got the basic, you know, uh, information from the patients. H how do you, how do you assimilate all this information, analyze it, measure risk? How does, how does that happen? So, so generally, you know, I, again, I t take, I meet with a patient, I talk about, I review all these factors that we just talked about, the basic risk factors for heart disease. You know, we, we look at these li lipids, everything else. And then, and when, then what we, what we do once we have all that information is I get a general estimate 
of what I think your risk of a heart attack is, a heart attack or stroke uh, over 10 years and over your lifetime. And those those numbers can be assessed or estimated based on, you know, a couple different, uh, you know, uh, things we use. I think there's uh, traditionally we would use something called a Framingham risk score. There's also a uh, estimator that we utilize through the American Heart Association that gives us a very good estimate of risk. Um, and then again, that splits it up. And generally speaking, I can tell you your risk is probably under 3% uh, risk of heart attack stroke over 10 years versus what we call an intermediate risk, which would be around 7 to 10% risk over 10 years or high risk, which would be about 20% risk over 20 over 10 years or more and that's those are general estimates based on that i can take those numbers and say this is kind of your risk and this is based on that risk these are the different things we can utilize to lower that risk and then of course i can give you a lifetime risk there's some patients that see me in the office who i can tell them with a straight face their risk of a heart attack and stroke over their lifetime is over 50 percent and that typically gets people's attention of course because nobody wants to have a one in two chance of having a heart attack and those would be reasons to be a lot more aggressive with lifestyle and perhaps medications. If that risk cannot be refined enough with those numbers that we just talked about, Robbie, that's where I can utilize other means like most, most commonly what's called a calcium score, which is a, 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 a basic test to look at how much early plaque you have. And that, that can refine that risk further if I'm not sure whether you're in that low risk or intermediate or high risk that, that, uh, that we think you are. Excellent. Okay. So the first step is the, the calculators uh, to measure. And if, if there's any question, you get a calcium score. I get, what would lead you to get a calcium score then? So if the calcium score generally by the guidelines or by the recommendations, if you are in a category where you're, we're not sure if you're that intermediate risk or if you're high risk. And so uh, it's where that initial assessment that we talked about doesn't tell us for sure whether you're, you know, and we need to refine that risk further. So a couple examples from what we talked about is, let's say your risk when I calculated is around 7%, but you have a really bad family history. You're, you have, you know, your mother and your dad had a heart attack. You're of South Asian descent, uh, you know, perhaps even, um, you know, lipoprotein A that's elevated, something like that. That would tell me, you know what, those risk, those, that no, those numbers may not be accurate. The calcium score would be a cat would be something that would help me there. So anything where I feel like there's a risk enhancing factor, not accounted for. Um, if you have a long-standing history of an inflammatory disease, like we talked about, let's say your risk is seven percent, but you've had lupus your whole life, right? So lupus inflammatory disease, and it can increase your risk above and beyond those cholesterol numbers. And so those would be reasons why I would want to stratify somebody further uh, by doing something like a calcium score, which tells us about how much early plaque you have. If you had a lot of early plaque on that store study, that would tell me your risk is much higher than that, you know, seven percent number over ten years. You know, much more like twenty percent. If your calcium score shows no plaque at all, I would bump you down from seven percent down to a one percent risk of a heart attack and stroke. And so those two things are very different in terms of how we manage you. And then, how often do you get that calcium score? How often do you? Um, so generally, you know, getting back to what we talked about before about how plaque builds up. You know, remember to our viewers that it, it builds up slowly over 10 to 20 years. So there's really no purpose in checking it more than about every five years uh, because plaque grows so slowly. And so generally, that's what the recommendation is. If it's indicated, it shouldn't be checked more than ever once in about every five years because you don't expect any major changes before that because of how slowly plaque builds up. Okay. And, and how long does it take to, can you explain how, how, you know, how it's done, the, how you check a calcium score, how does it take? Right. So, cal so calcium score uh, for your viewers, they, what it takes advantage of is the idea that getting back to what, we, what Robbie and I were talking about earlier with what makes up plaque. So plaque is the gunk that essentially gets into the walls of your arteries. And that plaque is composed of three major things, which is cholesterol, like the bad cholesterols, inflammatory cells. Uh, and then the third thing is calcium. So it's that soup that's those three things that makes up plaque. So we take advantage of that with this imaging study called the calcium score, because we can't light up cholesterol with any kind of study. We can't light up inflammatory cells, you know, with any kind of study, but we can light up calcium. And that's, that's with a CAT scan. So CAT scans will show calcium. It lights up as, as sort of white specks that we can see very easily. And so we use that to our advantage. And so we do a very basic 
CAT scan where we just look, take a quick look at the heart arteries. It does not tell us how much blockage you have. It tells us how much calcium you have in your walls. And so if you have any calcium at all, that suggests you do have some plaque. And we can then stratify and tell you how much you have. If you have none at all, that would tell us, usually if you had one of these reports, it would tell you calcium score is zero. And that suggests you have no plaque at all. And so that puts you in a very low risk category. We're talking about 1% risk of a heart attack or stroke over 10 years or lower. Um, if you had a calcium score that was really high, like a high calcium score would be over 400, for example, tells us you have a lot of plaque. And those patients are going to have a much higher risk of heart disease, 20% risk over 20 over 10 years or more. And uh, that's somebody I would treat very aggressively with lifestyle and definitely medications as well. Excellent. Okay. So just briefly to sum it up, low risks, low risk. Framingham score or the AHA uh, calculation, typically you don't necessarily need a calcium. No, not everybody. No. Okay. And if they're intermediate or high, that's when you consider getting Correct. a calcium score. Um, and, and that will help you narrow down their, their measured risk. They're intermediate risk and they have something else like we talked about that yeah. may modify their risk that we're not sure of. Okay. And also what, what about the triglyceride to HDL ratio? Some, you know, some people get this ratio. Is that, is that helpful for measuring risk? Um, yeah, it's helpful as an indirect marker of what we call metabolic syndrome. So if your triglycerides are really high and your HDL is low, um, that tells me that you're, there's a condition called metabolic syndrome, which puts you basically is typically found people who have a lot of abdominal obesity and they puts them at higher risk for diabetes, puts them at higher risk for, for heart disease. And so that's just a general marker that if your triglyceride HDL ratio is off, that you're higher risk for this metabolic syndrome and you should be treated more aggressively in terms of lifestyle. Okay, so now you've, you've measured their risk. Um, you've, you've categorized them. Um, how do you decide if treatment's necessary and what types of treatments do you consider? Right. So, so uh, treatments depend a lot on that risk that we just talked about. So if you are, so starting at sort of the, the lower end of the spectrum. So, you know, if you're, if you have lifestyle factors that are not controlled and your risk is not in the very high, everything starts and ends with lifestyle initially. And so, so we control those risk factors, the high blood pressure, uh, whether your sugar is high or not, um, you know, your cholesterol, and almost all those factors start with a combination of improving your diet and improving your fitness or your exercise. Um, and that's where everything starts. Medications are reserved for people who have either very high risk uh, to begin with, and, and that risk is not affected by attempts at lifestyle, uh, lifestyle efforts. Okay. So if somebody has, somebody's high risk, obviously if they've had a previous event or they're, they're categorized to a high to a high risk category. You start them on treatment, uh, so pharmaceutical treatment. Right. I mean, lifestyle. Remember, it's not. I I I I like to not phrase things as lifestyle versus medications because, right. as you know, you know anybody who practices preventive cardiology will tell you that it's lifestyle is, is a backbone of everything we do. So it's not one versus the other. Uh, and I want the readers to under the listeners to to really understand that it's not. Uh, there's a lot of studies that show that people who start medications often get much looser with their lifestyle um, because they feel like it's one or the other, and it should never be that. Okay, lifestyle is the beginning of everything. It's it has an effect no matter what. But to get back to your question, Robbie, if you're at very high risk, uh, and what I mean by that is 20% risk of a heart attack or stroke or more over 10 years. You are going to do lifestyle and you should do lifestyle efforts even more aggressively than you would otherwise, but it's highly unlikely that that alone by itself without the addition of medications will lower your risk enough uh, to put it down to a lower range. And that's why typically patients in that category will need aggressive lifestyle and medications. Okay. And and uh, just just to kind of clarify my perspective, I, I mean, there's certainly a reason and need for people to go on medications. I'm not against pharmaceuticals. But I think that we use them, uh, we, may, we probably use them more often than we should for certain cases. And, and the cases that we're really talking about are the intermediate risk type patients. Because the lower risk patients, you know, we're really focusing on lifestyle. I mean, as you mentioned, Tara, all patients lifestyle, but really, you know, truly that's it for as far as the um, intervention. For the intermediate risk patient, that's where the question mark comes. 
And that's where I think being more aggressive on livestock could potentially make a difference or will make a difference, not could potentially, but will make a difference. Um, and then you can also measure how effective that difference is by the tests that we just discussed. I mean, because you can repeat these tests as, as we, you know, the ones like the, the cholesterol panel and, you know, kind of just general Absolutely. blood pressure measurements and things of that sort and see uh, and kind of re reanalyze and re-risk stratify folks. I guess to that point, how often do you check, you know, a lipid panel? Well, that's a great question. And, and again, the backbone off what you just said, Ravi, like it, you're absolutely right that we rush often too much. We we need to realize that these things happen over years, right? Plaque buildup happens over years. So there is nothing wrong with giving a really important, you know, a, a, a wholehearted attempt at as much lifestyle efforts as we can. You're not losing anything, but try. you don't have to necessarily start with medication. I rarely do. I always give a good-hearted effort at lifestyle efforts first. And then, and to answer your question, typically for a lifestyle effort to have a significant effect on your cholesterol, it's got to achieve some weight loss if you're overweight and it's, it's got to be sustained. It's not a 10 week program or eight week program. Um, that's often why these, interestingly, that's why a lot of these, uh, um, keto diets don't work because long-term because they achieve weight loss short-term, but then over the long-term they're not sustainable. So Generally, I wouldn't check a cholesterol on somebody who are trying to be aggressive about lifestyle more often than about, you know, at the very earliest three months, usually more like six months, because you need that amount of time to to really have sustained efforts at weight loss and lifestyle changes. Perfect. And then, you know, when we talk about lifestyle, exercise, diet, you know, there's, there's good data on the Mediterranean diet, sleep, stress reduction. These are all important. I mean, these are all important topics, and we've got many podcasts about these types of things. But any, anything else, Tarek, that you that you put in the lifestyle category? Um, I would say, I mean, you know, as you know, life, diet is in and of itself a, uh, you know, in category of itself. But generally speaking, I would say the more, the more plant-based your diet is, the closer it is to a Mediterranean, a pescatarian or, or plant-based diet, the better. I caution a lot of your viewers about going into these fad diets. I don't even actually like the term diet because I think it's a lifestyle change. And I truly believe that. It's not, I never talk about dieting to patients. I tell them you need to have a lifestyle change. And that's, that's you know, that's really um, uh, sort of really, really valuing the importance of vegetables, of plant-based diet, uh, of fish, and then getting away from the, the, the sort of, you know, processed stuff that, that we know has kind of infiltrated itself into the American diet. I think you mentioned uh, exercise. What what One thing I would highlight about that issue based on what you just said is people have this misconception that exercise to have benefit has to be, you know, the marathon runners or the people who are running four miles every day, seven days a week. And actually the studies don't support that. Actually, it's a very common misperception. In order to get the benefit from exercise, you do not need to do very much, actually, interestingly enough. Most of the benefit is just that first 150 minutes a week of exercise. And it's just low-level exercise, just walking 150 minutes a week. Most of the benefit in terms of reducing your risk of heart attack and stroke comes from that first 150 minutes of just the equivalent of walking. It's not, you know, and I mention that because a lot of people will say, oh, I'm not going to get any benefit because I'm not doing very much. Well, just going from doing nothing to just walking, that is in and of itself a huge success and you should focus on that. Sometimes we, when we think our goals are not achievable, uh, we don't even try, right? And so that's why I always mention that to patients. It's, it's important to understand that that goal is achievable. Everybody can find 150 minutes of walking time a week. I don't care how busy you are. Yeah, that's, so that's 30 minutes a day, five days a week. Yeah, you know, you can, if you're on a phone call or you're, you wanna listen to an, a podcast or audio book or whatever, I, I do this all the time. I go on a walk just to yeah. loop around my neighborhood. And it's it's easy. It's actually nice being outside, being that Absolutely. fresh air. Yeah. So it's 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 easy, as you said, easy to do. Uh you just kind of focus on and make it a habit and uh do it. That's that's great, Derek, to stress and highlight that point because it's really just the basic exercise that's needed and it's so beneficial. I mean, if you if you could put exercise on a pill, that would sell for billions. I mean, all the benefits I, of exercise. I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, no, there's uh, there's all kinds of fascinating data. We could have a whole podcast about exercise, but it's uh, it's fascinating, actually. It's a lot of misconceptions. Um, you know, it, it's the same. Interesting, there's even like that, you know, uh, parabolic curve that we talked about. Like there's, 
beyond what I just talked about, anything more, if you do it because of pleasure, because it reduces stress, great. But just understand most of the benefit is just that first 150 minutes. You don't really gain much from like there's studies on treadmills and, you know, uh, going above seven miles an hour on a treadmill really has very little benefit beyond that. It's just getting to do something. You know, there's a cool study that, uh, there's a cool study that looked at, an older study that looked at uh, uh, workers on a train and it compared people who were the ones who walked through the train and, uh, you know, when they're on it and versus the, the conductor who just doesn't do anything, just sits in the front. And there's a massive difference in the risk of heart attack and stroke just based on which of those two occupations you had. And that was the only difference. Yeah. One, one, one set of people were walking along the train um, back and forth as part of their occupation. Yeah. And one, one person just sat in the front of the train. Excellent. And then one point I just want to make about diet, um, and I, I 100% agree with you that, that vegetables, plant-based diet is so important. And if, if you are, or when you are preparing a meal, try to make three-fourths of that plate uh, vegetables. And then the last, the last quarter of it could be some you know, high-quality protein source. The source matters of your food. You, you don't 100%. want stuff. Yeah, keep the processed stuff off your plate, the high... High fat or not high fat, high sh- high sugars, um, good fats. You know they're great. They're they're, they're important. Um, um, it's some of the rancid fats and the processed fats that are the problem. But again, this is a, that's a huge topic. We can we can discuss that at a later time. Um, excellent. So we got the lifestyle measures. We got you, you know ha- how to our uh, importance of implementing them. Retest maybe after three to six months, and then also there's this big category of nutraceuticals. Which nutraceuticals? Actually, uh, Robbie, before we yeah. get to that, if you don't yeah. mind, I apologize, but I just I I just realized I didn't answer completely your question. So sure. you were asking also about what other lifestyle factors. So oh, sure. that I would recommend. We talked about some of the diet, and again, everything you said is absolutely accurate. One ingredient foods, mostly a plant based diet with a, a, sure. a good source of protein. We talked about the exercise. The other factors that we know that I always discuss with patients is sleep quality is very important, right? So there's studies that show people who have a either poor sleep or not enough sleep have a higher risk of heart disease. The other lifestyle factor that we always talk about is is stress. And you know we don't talk about that enough. You have to find ways to reduce stress. It does have an effect on your heart. And so uh, stress, of course, gets reduced with exercise, with clean eating, but also just, you know, other measures, whether it's meditation or, or prayer or whatever fits your lifestyle, but just finding ways to reduce stress is very important. Um, and then the other factors uh, lifestyle wise that I often uh, talk about with patients um, is just, you know, uh, again, not smoking, not being in smoking environments. And then, um, you know, other things I think would just be your activity level in general. So just again, without exercise, just finding ways to incorporate activity. Within the exercise, since we're going away from that, one thing I also want your viewers to know, it's not just the aerobic exercise. Actually, there are studies that show above that 150 minutes, if you want to increase, reduce your risk further, you're more likely to benefit yourself above that 150 minutes of low intensity by doing a little bit of resistance training or actually, or kind of weights as opposed to increasing the amount of aerobic. And that's that's been shown fairly clearly. So don't forget about a little bit of resistance training. Doesn't have to be much. It's not, you know, the the uh, the the uh, the big muscle guys in the gym. It's just doing a little bit of resistance, whether it's push-ups, pull-ups, basic stuff to increase your strength in older patients, doing balance training, you know, things to improve your balance muscles. Those are all things to reduce your risk as well. And I always talk about that as well as far as the overall lifestyle stuff. Well, that's very interesting. Yeah, we, we should do another podcast on, on exercise because this, <laughs> this is a fascinating topic. Great. Okay, so uh, now moving on to nutraceuticals. You know, many people have heard about omega-3 fatty acids, coenzyme Q10. Um, what are your recommendations to folks regarding nutraceuticals? Yeah, so, um, so I think... In terms of a lot of these, uh, the data um, in general, in terms of you know, in in, in as a cardiologist, I, I really look at thing you know studies what they clearly show in terms of uh, risk, and what we know is in general a lot of them don't have you know a lot of very robust data to suggest they benefit patients. Now there are certain populations of patients who may benefit from certain of these. So for example. If you are somebody who your doctor feels you should be on a statin medication, a cholesterol medication to reduce your heart risk, and you're developing things like muscle aches, for example, things that we know may be a side effect from that medication, we know in that case, uh, you know, certain 
uh, coenzyme Q10, for example, may be able to help you in that situation. If you're def- vitamin D deficient in that situation, that may help you as well. So uh, those are situations where supplements may be helpful. There aren't a lot of studies that show harm to these, me- these a lot of these that you talk about, Ravi, um, but those are the categories of people where I would say, you know, there may be benefit to, to utilizing them. If you, you know, but as a broad category of saying, let's take all these to reduce your heart risk, in everybody, I would say the answer is no, not in a general sense for everybody. It's a refinement of depending on the certain patient. Excellent. Yeah. And, and from a functional medicine perspective, omega-3 fatty acids are recommended, um, you know, EPA, DHA, coenzyme Q10, as, as uh, Tarek mentioned, you know, you could take with the statin. Vitamin K2, uh, along with vitamin D, there's no, there's no good data on it currently, but it's not necessarily harmful. And vitamin K2 actually prevents you from depositing calcium into, uh, um, uh, supposedly pre- prevents it from depositing into to arteries and in more into bones. So I would, you know, there's no, the harm isn't there. The benefit is potentially there. My personal feeling is, you know, it's okay to take these things as long as it's sourced well. Personally, I take omega-3 fatty acids twice a day, vitamin D every day. Going to start taking vitamin K2. Personally, um, I don't take coenzyme G10, but if I were on a statin, I'd take it. Yeah. No, I think that's reasonable. Um, the, the one thing I'll add to what you were saying about the omega-3s and the fish oils is interestingly, um, there's a thought There's a thought in the community based on the studies that one of the reasons perhaps that there isn't such robust data for taking omega-3 fatty acids in terms of reducing your risk of heart attack and stroke, uh, whereas you know, we know that that's that is exactly what reduces the risk in fish, right? We know people who eat a lot of fish on average twice a week or more have lower risk. Why is it that omega-3s don't show the same benefit? Well, a lot of that, as you might imagine, is because when you eat fish, you're replacing something else by eating it, right? So like, you know, when Ravi is eating three meals of fish a week, he's replacing the steak he would have otherwise eaten with 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 uh, fish, right? Whereas when you take an omega-3, uh, I'm not saying not to do it. I'm just saying that's possibly the reason why you're not getting benefit is if you take an omega-3, you may still be eating your steak and then having the omega-3 and that may be why you're not getting a benefit. Uh, so I, I think, you know, if you use the supplements the right way, perhaps you'll get benefit, but don't think that you can just go eat your steaks three days a week and yes. get your omega-3s and you're going to have the benefit because it's just not going to work. We know the studies show that. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, lifestyle diet, one, two, and three supplements, they're like little tweaks on top. I wouldn't say they replace medications in this circumstance, but they will potentially help you get to your goals uh, that you have. So, uh, so we're, we're wrapping up here. I appreciate Sergey sharing all this wonderful information with us. It absolutely helps. Let me ask you this. Have you, what's your criteria to get someone off a stat? Because there are a lot of people I know that are, that they're, you know, where the primary doctor puts them on statins, they're like, Hey, look, I don't really want to be on this. I don't think it's necessary. How do I get off? So what, what's your criteria? Right. So excellent question. And this comes up uh, certainly more often than you think. So I would say, again, focusing again, getting back to the beginning of our talk on, it's not about your cholesterol number, but what your risk is. So uh, there are two categories of people where I would potentially stop their statin. Um, one would be that you know, when I re again, risk is not something that it's fluid, right? So risk is not one time, one point in time, you're 25 years old or 40 years old or 50 or 60, you get one cat, one assessment of risk and you're done, right? Just like lifestyle changes, your weight changes, your cholesterol changes, your risk is going to change too. And so if I reassess your risk and determine, man, you've lost, you know, 50 pounds, you're now exercising 150 minutes a week, You've gone to a pescatarian diet or a totally plant-based diet. You've done all this stuff. And when I reassess your risk after you've done all these things, your risk overall maybe used to be high and now is very low. Okay. So one, if you so if one category of people is if your risk has dramatically changed based on your lifestyle or based on your passage of time and everything you've done, that would be somebody who may bet may be fine to stop stat therapy if their risk has gone come down to a low level. Um, a calcium score would be helpful in this way. So if, you know, if, if your risk was thought to be high and you're trying to get off statins, uh, maybe your doctor isn't sure if your risk is about the same, the calcium score comes back and it's zero and it shows no plaque. That would be somebody that even if it was started earlier, if your calcium score is zero, you're probably not going to benefit from statins. So one category is, again, to summarize, 
if your risk appears to have changed and dropped significantly. That would be one category of person who may stop statins. The second is somebody who, knowing that statins reduce risk over 10 years, right? So it's not an immediate, there's some benefit initially, but it's mostly over time. If you have gotten to the point in your life where, you, where for a variety of reasons, your life expectancy or how long we think you're going to live is probably not more than about five years, there's very, it's very unlikely statins would help if your life expectancy is, is lower than we think because the, benef- the study medicine benefits you over time. So that would be somebody who I'd consider stopping the medicine as well. Wonderful. Is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners, anything we haven't covered that you think is very important? I mean, I think I think just reemphasizing that you know I love your, what you're doing, and I think it's really important because we don't have enough. I can, I can tell you this as a cardiologist who deals with this every day: is we do not talk enough about lifestyle. We should. Um, it's not a replacement for medications in the right circumstances, but we need more of an emphasis on you know what can we do lifestyle-wise to reduce people's risk, and you got to address these things, and we need people who have the time to do it who can actually sit down to do it. And I think, you know, most doctors, unfortunately, because of the way medicine is, you know, they do their best, but they often do not have time to address all those. I mean, we just did a podcast for almost an hour and we barely touched the surface of these lifestyle issues, right? So having people like Ravi really focus and spend time on these lifestyle things is critical because it's just a supplement to your doctor and what uh, the, the limited time they have to address these things. Well, thank you for that, Tarek. And um, I really encourage folks to check out peakwellnesshealth.com, linked in the show notes below. Check out the uh, 10-day detox module because it's really all of what we just discussed is really in that module. It, it kind of puts it all together very nicely, right. teaches you about you know the right ways to diet, the right exercise to take, mindfulness techniques, stress reduction techniques, all, all, all the above. So Tarek, really appreciate you being on. This was phenomenal, very helpful. Um, if people want to get in contact with you or maybe even see you as their cardiologist, how, how would they do that? Uh, always happy to see somebody for a preventive conversation. Preventive cardiology, as you guys can tell, is my passion. So, uh, you know, I am uh, my office uh, I is with Virginia Hart, and that would be in the Falls Church office. Just look up uh, virginiahart.com and you should be able to see, uh, you know, you should be able to set up an appointment with me that way. Wonderful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You're welcome. Best of luck to everybody. And, uh, and if you have any questions, certainly reach out to Ravi or myself. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, please make sure to hit the subscribe and the like button and leave a comment about what you'd like to see on our future episodes. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only, does not substitute for professional care, nor does it constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for medical care, please seek a qualified doctor or medical professional. For more information, or if you'd like to check out our programs, please visit our website, peakwellnesshealth.com. That's peakwellnesshealth.com.